We know how many of you love the music on the Sleepy Bookshelf. Well, now you can listen to it on our sister podcast, Deep Sleep Sounds, while you sleep, work, study, or relax. Just follow the link in the show notes for Deep Sleep Sounds. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being here tonight. This evening, we're returning to Anne of Avonlea. But first, let's take a moment to relax our minds and bodies. Wherever you are, give your shoulders a roll, forwards and backwards, however many times feels good for you. Close your eyes and inhale deeply for one, two, three seconds and then hold for one, two, three seconds. Now exhale for one, two, three seconds. Continue this steady breath and pay attention to how your body feels. Without lingering too long, just notice each body part from your toes to the top of your head and mindfully release any tension you find anywhere. With one more deep breath in when you're done, audibly sigh out your exhale and settle down while I recap our last episode. Previously, Diana had heard the cop girls up on Tory Road in Spencervale had a platter exactly like the one Anne had borrowed and broken from Diana's Aunt Josephine. She was sure they would sell it if Anne offered to buy it, so they travelled up there together one hot, dry day. The cop girls weren't in when they arrived, And to be sure, the platter was the right one. Anne climbed on top of their old duck house to peek into the window to the pantry. Confirming it was what she'd been looking for, she hopped for joy and went straight through the roof of the old house. Diana quickly fetched a keg for Anne to stand on, but couldn't help her out as there were too many splinters they had to wait for the girls to come home. When they did, after a short thunderstorm, Miss Sarah Cop was very understanding and chopped Anne out of her predicament with an axe. She then prepared tea for her visitors and agreed to sell Anne the platter for $25. Weeks later, 
Anne had stopped by to visit Paul Irving. He was home alone as his grandma was out, aside from the housemaid, so Anne stayed to tea. Paul revealed all his thoughts to Anne as a fellow kindred spirit and asked her to come to his room to see a photo of his late mother. And that is where we pick back up tonight. Anne, sitting in Paul's window seat. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 19 Just a Happy Day Continued Now I want to hear those thoughts which Mary Jo pronounces so queer, said Anne, patting the mop of curls at her side. Paul never needed any coaxing to tell his thoughts, at least congenial songs. I thought them out in the fir grove one night, he said dreamily. Of course I didn't believe them, but I thought them. You know, teacher? And then I wanted to tell them to somebody, and there was nobody but Mary Jo. Mary Jo was in the pantry, setting bread, and I sat down on the bench beside her, and I said, Mary Jo, do you know what I think? I think the evening star is a lighthouse on the land where the fairies dwell. Mary Jo said, Well, you are a queer one. There ain't such thing as fairies. I was very much provoked. Of course I knew there are no fairies, but that needn't prevent my thinking there is, you know, teacher. But I tried again quite patiently. I said, well then, Mary Jo, do you know what I think? I think an angel walks over the world after the sunset. A great, tall, white angel with silvery folded wings and sings to the flowers and the birds to sleep. Children can hear them if they know how to listen. Then Mary Jo held up her hands all over flower and said, well, you are a queer little boy. You make me feel scared. She really did look scared. I went out then and whispered the rest of my thoughts to the garden. There was a little birch tree in the garden and it died. Grandma says the salt spray killed it. But I think the dryad belonging to it was a foolish dryad who wandered away to see the world and got lost. And the little tree was so lonely it died of a broken heart. And when the poor, foolish little dryad gets tired of the world and comes back to her tree, her heart will break, said Anne. Yes, but if dryads are foolish, they must take the consequences, just as if they were real people, said Paul gravely. Do you know what I think about the new moon, teacher? think it's a little golden boat full of dreams. And when it tips on a cloud, some of them spill out and fall into your sleep. 
exactly, teacher. Oh, you do know. I think the violets are little snips of the sky that fell down when the angels cut out holes for the stars to shine through. And the buttercups are made out of cold sunshine. And I think that sweet peas will be butterflies when they go to heaven. Now, teacher, do you see anything so very queer about those thoughts? No, laddie dear. They're not queer at all. They are strange and beautiful thoughts for a little boy to think. And so people who couldn't think anything of the sort themselves if they tried for a hundred years think them queer. But keep on thinking them, Paul. Someday you're going to be a poet, I believe. When Anne reached home, she found a very different type of boyhood wanting to be put to bed. Davy was sulky, and when Anne had undressed him, he bounced into bed and buried his face in the pillow. Davy, you have forgotten to say your prayers, said Anne rebukingly. No, I didn't forget, said Davy defiantly, but I ain't going to say my prayers anymore. I'm going to give up trying to be good, because no matter how good I am, you like Paul Irving better, so I may as well just be bad and have the fun of it. I don't like Paul Irving better, said Anne seriously. I like you just as well, only in a different way. I want you to like me in the same way, pouted Davy can't like different people in the same way. You don't like Dora and me the same way, do you? Davy sat up and reflected. No, he admitted at last. I like Dora because she's my sister. But I like you because you're you. And I like Paul because he is Paul and Davy because he is Davy said Anne gaily. Well, kind of wish I'd said my prayers then, said Davy, convinced by this logic. But it's too much bother getting out now to say them. I'll say them twice over in the morning, Anne. Won't that do as well? No, Anne was positive it would not do as well. So Davy scrambled out and knelt down at her knee. When he had finished his devotions, he leaned back on his little, bare, brown heels and looked up at her. Anne, I'm gooder than I used to be. Yes, indeed you are, Davy, said Anne, who never hesitated to give credit where credit was due. I know I'm gooder, said Davy, confidently, and I'll tell you how I know it. Today, Marilla gave me two pieces of bread and jam, one for me and one for Dora. One was a good deal bigger than the other. Marilla didn't say which one was mine, but I gave the biggest piece to Dora. That was good of me, wasn't it? Very good, Davy. Of course, admitted Davy. Dora wasn't very hungry and she only ate half her slice. Then she gave the rest to me. I didn't know she was going to do that when I gave it to her. So I was good, Anne. 
in the twilight, Anne sauntered down to the Dryad's bubble and saw Gilbert Blythe coming through the dusky, haunted wood. She had a sudden realization that Gilbert was a schoolboy no longer, and how manly he looked. The tall, frank-faced fellow with the clear, straightforward eyes and the broad shoulders. Anne thought Gilbert was a very handsome lad, even though he didn't look at all like her ideal man. She and Diana had long ago decided what kind of a man they admired, and their tastes seemed exactly similar. He must be very tall and distinguished-looking, with melancholy, inscrutable eyes and a melting, sympathetic voice. There was nothing either melancholy or inscrutable in Gilbert's physiognomy. Of course, that didn't matter in friendship. Gilbert stretched himself out on the ferns beside the bubble and looked approvingly at Anne. If Gilbert had been asked to describe his ideal woman, the description would have answered point for point to Anne, even to those seven tiny freckles whose obnoxious presence still continued to vex her soul. Gilbert was as yet little more than a boy, but a boy has his dreams, as have others, and in Gilbert's future there was always a girl with big, limpid grey eyes and a face as fine and delicate as a flower. He had made up his mind also that this future must be worthy of its goddess. Even in quiet Avonlea, there were temptations to be met and faced. White Sands' youth were a rather fast set, and Gilbert was popular wherever he went but he meant to keep himself worthy of Anne's friendship and perhaps some distant day, her love, and he watched over word and thought and deed as jealously as if her clear eyes were to pass in judgment on it. She held over him the unconscious influence that every girl whose ideals are high and pure wields over her friends, an influence which would endure as long as she was faithful to those ideals, and which she would as certainly lose if she were ever false to them. In Gilbert's eyes, Anne's greatest charm was the fact that she never stooped to the petty practices of so many of the Avonlea girls, the small jealousies the little deceits and rivalries, the palpable bids for favour. Anne held herself apart from all this, not consciously or of design, but simply because anything of the sort was utterly foreign to her transparent, impulsive nature, crystal clear in its motives and aspirations, but Gilbert did not attempt to put his thoughts into words. 
for he had already too good reason to know that Anne would mercilessly and frostily nip all attempts at sentiment in the bud, or laugh at him, which was ten times worse. You look like a real dryad under that birch tree, he said teasingly. How I love birch trees, said Anne, laying her cheek against the creamy satin of the slim bowl with one of the pretty, caressing gestures that came so natural to her. Then you'll be glad to hear that Mr. Major Spencer has decided to set out a row of white birches all along the road in front of his farm by way of encouraging the AVIS, said Gilbert. He was talking to me about it today. Major Spencer is the most progressive and public-spirited man in Avonlea, and Mr. William Bell is going to set out a spruce hedge along his road front and up his lane. Our society is getting on splendidly, Am. It is past the experimental stage. It is an accepted fact. The older folks are beginning to take an interest in it, and the White Sands people are talking of starting one too. Even Alicia Wright has come round since the day and the Americans from the hotel had the picnic on the shore. They praised our roadside so highly and said they were so much prettier than in any other part of the island. When in due time, the other farmers follow Mr. Spencer's good example and plant ornamental trees the hedges along their front roads, Avonlea will be the prettiest settlement in the province. The aides are talking of taking up the graveyard, said Anne. I hope they will, because there will have to be a subscription for that. It will be no use for the society to try it after the hall affair. But the aides would never have stirred in the matter if the society hadn't put it into their thoughts unofficially. Those trees we planted on the church grounds are flourishing, and the trustees have promised me that they will fence in the school grounds next year. If they do, I'll have an arbor day and every scholar shall plant a tree, and we'll have a garden in the corner by the road. We've succeeded in almost all our plans so far, except in getting the old Balter house removed, said Gilbert. I've given up in that despair. Levi won't have it taken down just to vex us. There's a contrary streak in all the bolters that's strongly developed in him. Julia Bell wants to send another committee to him, but I think a better way would just be to leave him severely alone, said Anne sagely. And trust to Providence, as Mrs. Lynn says, smiled Gilbert. Certainly no more committees. They only aggravate him. Julia Bell thinks you can do anything if you only have a committee to attempt it. Next spring, Anne, we must start an agitation for nice lawns and grounds, or so good seed betimes this winter. I have a treatise here on lawns and lawn-making. I'm going to prepare a paper on the subject soon. Well, I suppose our vacation is almost over. School opens Monday. Has Ruby Gillis got the Carmody School? Yes, Priscilla wrote that she had taken her own homeschool, so the Carmody trustees gave it to Ruby. Sorry Priscilla is not coming back. Since she can't, I'm glad Ruby has got the school. 
She'll be home for Saturdays, and it will seem like old times to have her and Jane and Diana and myself all together again. Marilla, just home from Mrs. Lynde's, was sitting on the back porch step when Anne returned to the house. Rachel and I have decided to have our cruise to town tomorrow, she said. Mr. Lynde is feeling better this week and Rachel wants to go before he has another sick spell. I intend to get up extra early tomorrow morning for I have so much to do, said Anne virtuously. For one thing, I'm going to shift the feathers from my old bed tick to the new one. I ought to have done it long ago, but I just kept putting it off. Such a detestable task. It's a very bad habit to put off disagreeable things. I never mean to again, whilst I can't comfortably tell my pupils not to do it. That would be inconsistent. Then I want to make a cake for Mr. Harrison and finish my paper on gardens for the AVIS. And write Stella. And wash my starch muslin dress. And make Dora's new apron. You won't get half done, said Marilla pessimistically. I never yet planned to do a lot of things something happened to prevent me. Chapter 20 The Way It Often Happens Anne rose betimes the next morning and blithely greeted the fresh day when the banners of the sunrise were shaken triumphantly across the pearly skies. Green gables lay in a pool of sunshine, flecked with the dancing shadows of poplar and willow. Beyond the land was Mr. Harrison's wheat field, a great, wind-rippled expanse of pale gold. The world was so beautiful that Anne spent ten blissful minutes hanging idly over the garden gate drinking in the loveliness. After breakfast, Marilla made ready for her journey. Dora was to go with her, having been long promised this treat. Now, Davy, you try and be a good boy and don't bother Anne, she straightly charged him. If you are, I'll bring you a striped candy cane from town. For alas, Marilla had stooped to the evil habit of bribing people to be good. I won't be bad on purpose, but supposing I'm bad accidentally, Davy wanted to know. You have to guard against accidents, admonished Marilla. And if Mr. Shearer comes today, get a nice roast and some steak. If he doesn't, you'll have to kill a fowl for dinner tomorrow. Anne nodded. I'm not going to bother cooking any dinner for just Davy and myself today, she said. That cold ham bone will do for noon lunch and I'll have some steak fried for you when you come home at night. I'm going to help Mr. Harrison haul Dulce this morning, announced Davy. He asked me to, and I guess he'll ask me to dinner too. Mr. Harrison is an awful kind man. He's a real sociable man. I hope I'll be like him when I grow up. I mean, behave like him. I don't want to look like him. But I guess there's no danger. 
and Mrs. Lynn says I'm a very handsome child. Do you suppose it'll last, Anne? I want to know. I dare say it will, said Anne gravely. You are a handsome boy, Davy. Marilla looked volumes of disapproval. But you must live up to it and be just as nice and gentlemanly as you look to be. And you told Minnie May Barry the other day when you found her crying because someone said she was ugly. But if she was nice and kind and loving, people wouldn't mind her looks, said Davy discontentedly. Seems to me you can't get out of being good in this world for some reason or other. You just have to behave. Do you want to be good? asked Marilla who had learned a great deal, but had not yet learned the futility of asking such questions. Yes, I want to be good, but not too good, said Davy cautiously. You don't have to be very good to be a Sunday school superintendent. Mr. Bell's that, and he's a real bad man. Indeed he's not, said Marilla indignantly. He is. He says he is himself, asseverated Davy. He said it when he prayed in Sunday school last Sunday. He said he was a vile worm and a miserable sinner and guilty of the blackest iniquity. What did he do that was so bad, Marilla? Did he kill anybody or steal the collection sets? I want to know. Fortunately, Mrs. Lynde came driving up the lane at this moment, and Marilla made off, feeling that she had escaped from the snare of the fowler, and wishing devoutly that Mr. Bell were not so highly figurative in his public petitions, especially in the hearing of small boys who were always wanting to know. Anne left alone in her glory, worked with a will. The floor was swept, the beds made, the hens fed, the muslin dress washed and hung out on the line. Then Anne prepared for the transfer of feathers. She mounted to the garret and donned the first old dress that came to hand, a navy blue cashmere she had worn at fourteen it was decidedly on the short side and as skimpy as the notable wincy Anne had worn upon the occasion of her debut at Green Gables, but at least it would not be materially injured by down and feathers. Anne completed her outfit by tying a big red and white spotted handkerchief that belonged to Matthew over her head and thus accoutred took herself to the kitchen chamber, whither Marilla, before her departure, had helped her carry the feather bed. A cracked mirror hung by the chamber window, and in an unlucky moment Anne looked into it. There were those seven freckles on her nose, more rampant than ever or so it seemed in the glare of light from the unshaded window. Oh, I forgot to rub that lotion on last night, she thought. I'd better run down to the pantry and do it now. 
Anne had already suffered many things trying to remove those freckles. On one occasion, the entire skin had peeled off her nose, but the freckles remained. A few days previously, she had found a recipe for a freckle lotion in a magazine, and as the ingredients were within her reach, she straight away compounded it, much to the disgust of Marilla, who thought that if Providence had placed freckles on your nose, it was your bounden duty to leave them there. Anne scurried down to the pantry, which always dim from the big willow growing close to the window, was now almost dark by reason of the shade drawn to exclude flies. Anne caught the little bottle containing the lotion from the shelf and copiously anointed her nose therewith by means of a little sponge sacred to the purpose. The important duty done, she returned to her work. Anyone who has ever shifted feathers from one tick to another will not need to be told that when Anne was finished, she was a sight to behold. Her dress was white with down and fluff, and her front hair, escaping from under the handkerchief, was adorned with a veritable halo of feathers. At this auspicious moment, a knock sounded at the kitchen door. That must be Mr. Shearer, thought Anne. I'm in a dreadful mess, but I'll have to run down as I am, for he's always in a hurry. Down flew Anne to the kitchen door. If ever a charitable floor did open to swallow up a miserable, a feathered damsel in the Green Gables porch floor should promptly have engulfed Anne at that moment. On the doorstep, were standing Priscilla Grant, golden and fair in silk attire, a short, stout, grey-haired lady in a tweed suit, and another lady, tall, stately, wonderfully gowned, with a beautiful, high-bred face and large, black-lashed violet eyes, whom Anne instinctively felt as she would have said in her early days, to be Mrs. Charlotte E. Morgan. In the dismay of the moment, one thought stood out from the confusion of Anne's mind, and she gasped at it as the proverbial straw. All Mrs. Morgan's heroines were noted for rising to the occasion, no matter what their troubles were. They invariably rose to the occasion and showed their superiority over all ills of time, space, and quantity. Anne, therefore, felt it was her duty to rise to the occasion, and she did it so perfectly that Priscilla afterwards declared she never admired Anne Shirley more than in that moment. No matter what her outraged feelings were, she did not show them. She greeted Priscilla and was introduced to her companions as calmly and composedly as if she had been arrayed in purple and fine linen. To be sure, it was somewhat of a shock to find that the lady she had instinctively felt 
to be Mrs. Morgan was not Mrs. Morgan at all, but an unknown Mrs. Pendexter, while the stout little grey-haired woman was Mrs. Morgan. But in the greater shock, the lesser lost its power. Anne ushered her guests to the spare room and thence into the parlour, where she left them while she hastened out to help Priscilla unharness her horse. It's dreadful to come upon you so unexpectedly as this, apologised Priscilla. But I did not know till last night that we were coming. Aunt Charlotte is going away Monday, and she had promised to spend the day with a friend in town. But last night, her friend telephoned to her not to come, because they were quarantined with scarlet fever. So I suggested we come here instead, for I knew you were longing to see her. We called at the White Sands Hotel and brought Mrs. Pendexter with us. She's a friend of aunt's and lives in New York, and her husband is a millionaire. We can't stay for very long, for Mrs. Pendexter has to be back at the hotel by five o'clock. Several times, while they were putting away the horse, Anne caught Priscilla looking at her in a furtive, puzzled way. She needn't stare at me so, Anne thought a little resentfully. She doesn't know what it is to change a feather bed, she might imagine it. When Priscilla had gone to the parlour, and before Anne could escape upstairs, Diana walked into the kitchen. Anne caught her astonished friend by the arm. Diana Barry, who do you suppose is in that parlour at this very moment? Mrs. Charlotte E. Morgan, and a New York millionaire's wife. And here I am, like this. And not a thing in the house for dinner, but a cold ham bone, Diana. By this time, Anne had become aware that Diana was staring at her in precisely the same bewildered fashion as Priscilla had done. It was really too much. Oh, Diana, don't look at me so she implored. You at least must know that the neatest person in the world couldn't empty feathers from one tick into another and remain neat in the process. It... it... uh, it isn't the feathers, hesitated Diana. It's... it's your nose, Anne. My nose? Oh, Diana, surely nothing has gone wrong with it. Anne rushed to the little looking glass over the sink. One glance revealed the fatal truth. Her nose was a brilliant scarlet. Anne sat down on the sofa, her dauntless spirit subdued at last. What is the matter with it? asked Diana, curiosity overcoming delicacy. I thought I was rubbing my freckle lotion on it, but I must have used that red dye Marilla has for marking the pattern on her rugs, was the despairing response. What shall I do? Wash it off, said Diana practically. Perhaps it won't wash off. First I'd dye my hair, then I'd dye my nose. Marilla cut my hair off when I dyed it 
that remedy would hardly be practicable in this case. Oh, this is another punishment for vanity. I suppose I deserve it. But there's not much comfort in that. Really, it's almost enough to make me believe in ill luck. But Mrs. Lynn says there's no such thing because everything is foreordained. Fortunately, the dye washed off easily, and Anne, somewhat consoled, betook herself to the east gable while Diana ran home. Presently, Anne came down again, clothed and in her right mind. The muslin dress she had fondly hoped to wear was bobbing merrily about on the line outside, so she was forced to content herself with her black lawn. She had the fire on and the tea steeping when Diana returned. The latter wore her muslin at least and carried a covered platter in her hand. Mother sent you this, she said, lifting the cover and displaying a nicely carved and jointed chicken to Anne's grateful eyes. The chicken was supplemented by light new bread excellent butter and cheese, Marilla's fruitcake and a dash of preserved plums floating in their golden syrup as in congealed summer sunshine. There was a big bowl full of pink and white asters also by way of decoration, yet the spread seemed very meagre beside the elaborate one formerly prepared for Mrs. Morgan. Anne's hungry guests, however, did not seem to think anything was lacking, and they ate the simple viand with apparent enjoyment. But after the first few moments, Anne thought no more of what was or was not on her bill of fare. Mrs. Morgan's appearance might be somewhat disappointing, as even her loyal worshippers had been forced to admit to each other but she proved to be a delightful conversationalist. She had travelled extensively and was an excellent storyteller. She had seen much of men and women and crystallised her experiences into witty little sentences and epigrams which made her hearers feel as if they were listening to one of the people in clever books. But under all her sparkle, there was a strongly felt undercurrent of true womanly sympathy and kind-heartedness which won affection as easily as her brilliancy won admiration. Nor did she monopolize the conversation. She could draw others out as skillfully and fully as she could talk herself. And Anne and Diana found themselves chattering freely to her. Mrs. Pendexter said little. She merely smiled with her lovely eyes and lips and ate chicken and fruitcake and preserves with such exquisite grace that she conveyed the impression of dining on ambrosia and honeydew. But then, as Anne and Diana said to each other later on, Anybody so divinely beautiful as Mrs. Pendexter didn't need to talk. It was enough for her just to look. After dinner, 
they all had a walk through Lover's Lane, Violet Vale, and the Birch Path, then back through the haunted wood to the Dryad's Bubble, where they sat down and talked for a delightful last half hour. Mrs. Morgan wanted to know how the haunted wood came by its name, and laughed until she cried when she heard the story and Anne's dramatic account of a certain memorable walk through it at the witching hour of twilight. It has indeed been a feast of reason and flow of soul, hasn't it? said Anne when her guests had gone and she and Diana were alone again. I don't know which I enjoyed more, listening to Mrs. Morgan or gazing at Mrs. Pendexter. I believe we had a nicer time than if we'd known they were coming and been cumbered with much serving. You must stay to tea with me, Diana, and we'll talk it over. Priscilla says Mrs. Pendexter's husband's sister is married to an English earl, and yet she took a second helping of the plum preserves, said Diana as if the two facts were somehow incompatible. I dare say even the English Earl himself wouldn't have turned up his aristocratic nose at Marilla's plum preserves, said Anne proudly. Anne did not mention the misfortune which had befallen her nose when she related the day's history to Marilla that evening, but she took the bottle of freckle lotion and emptied it out of the window. I shall never try any beautifying messes again, she said, darkly resolute. They may do for careful, deliberate people, but for anyone so hopelessly given over to making mistakes as I seem to be, it's tempting fate to meddle with them. <laughs> 